there is no question in my mind, and there never actually really has been, that you would need to move to banking to be able to properly offer a full suite of financial services and incorporate digital assets into them. There are a lot of regulated financial services, industries and regimes and regulators across the US, but banking is the granddaddy of them all and at the bottom of the stack. And if you really want to be a player in the space, you're going to need to go to banking. And banking preempts a lot of other regimes as well. So you don't have this duplicative kind of oversight. If you were to say, well, we want to go a 50-state money transmitter, and now we need to have, be a broker-dealer in order to like custody and clear, and we need to you know, go to the CFTC for derivatives, all this stuff can be uh, consolidated at a banking regime level, which is why it's so exciting. I don't think there's any doubt that you're going to see other digital asset companies uh, pursuing bank charters, and you're going to see already bank chartered institutions getting into digital assets. The advantage here is Wyoming and the SPDI regime, I believe, is two years ahead of any other regulator in the space. Now, that'll be accelerated because they will borrow very liberally from the Wyoming standards. But the fact of the matter is when you have someone like the OCC come out with that interpretive letter, that's tremendous. Again, I've said uh, I've always understood banks to be able to do that. But if you're a large institution, having that letter uh, reduces some perceived risk on your part. But the bottom line is that the frameworks haven't changed and the supervisory program hasn't changed. And until you do that, Wyoming is still the best banking charter for digital asset companies. Take that, New York. In the early days of Bitcoin, there were no rules, or at least none that people understood. And the first batch of crypto companies that came out were entirely focused on functionality, simply making things possible that before crypto had seemed impossible. In the aftermath of the collapse of first Mt. Gox, and then later the Dow, it became obvious that rules did apply, or at least would moving forward. Although it wasn't very clear which ones or how, with many different regulatory bodies claiming authority in confusing and often conflicting ways. As law, if not order, came to our industry, much of crypto's first wave of US-based exchanges were crushed as they struggled to get legal, a challenging task with different rules and unique compliance burdens for each state and territory they'd operate in. New York famously introduced the Bit License, which in the five years since its introduction has approved just 25 companies to operate under it. Today, we've got a pair of stories that illustrate just how much things have changed, with first a group of banking supervisors from 49 of the 50 states coming together on a unified examination and information sharing scheme, and then yesterday, Kraken Financial becoming the first crypto company to receive a banking charter under Wyoming's Special Purpose Depository Institution Statute, pioneered by past guest of the show, Caitlin Long. This episode is sponsored by Crypto.com, Bitstamp, and Nexo.io. So with all that said, my name is Adam B. Levine. I'm joined, as always, by the other host of the show, Stephanie Murphy. Hi. Andreas M. Antonopoulos. Hello. And special guest, David Kanitsky, CEO of Kraken Financial. Hey there. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, David, thank you very much for being here today on such short notice. Jonathan is out this week. So we're just going to jump right into it. Andreas, why don't you lead us off here? Well, uh, both of these things are uh, things we've talked about before, and I think they're important milestones in the development of the crypto space in the United States specifically. You know, one of the things that we've seen in the United States for a long time and we've talked about before is that the state-based regulation on money transmitters created a massively fragmented, almost impossible set of barriers and bureaucratic red tape that had to be surmounted. Now, of course, that kind of barrier, it doesn't prevent financial institutions from overcoming them. It simply raises the cost of entry, meaning that competition is thwarted 
and only the best financed companies that can afford this level of compliance as a cost of business can get in. Now, that really discourages competition, as we've seen in the financial services space. And it was a unique characteristic. In Europe, for example, you have unified banking regulations in the broader European economic area and uh, many other very large markets in the order of size of the U.S. market have unified banking regulations for cryptocurrency companies, even if that unification means it's just simply banned. <laughs> At least it's consistent everywhere. So this is good news. I was, in fact, shocked to see this happen. The fact that finally there's some consistency across state regulators. And then the other piece of news, of course, we had predicted that at some point we would have our second AOL moment. And the second AOL moment on the internet wasn't when AOL joined the internet, but it was when AOL bought Time Warner. The ultimate flippening of the space when a little internet startup buys a media company. Well, we had long predicted that eventually crypto companies would become banks or eventually even buy banks in order to compete on a more level playing field. And today that seems to be happening. So, you know, this is great news across the board. I look forward to the days, you know, 10 years in the future, perhaps when we're excited really about sort of the adoption potential rather than impediments being removed. But today, a major impediment has been removed. And so, David, I appreciate you joining us on the show today. Can you talk to us about what Kraken Financial is and kind of what your aims are here? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as, as you mentioned, Kraken Financial uh, yesterday uh, was the first crypto company to receive a bank charter. Kraken Financial is a uh, subsidiary of Kraken, who, who many in the space know. But because it's a bank, it does have some independent governance and operations that a traditional subsidiary entity might not have. So this Kraken financial entity is now chartered as a type of bank that's called a special purpose depository institution or SPDI under Wyoming state banking law. Now in the U.S., state chartered banks have all of the same powers as, as federally chartered banks. So this is a proper bank, um, but it's a very specific type of bank uh, that's carefully tailored to the needs of a digital asset or fintech style company. For one, it uh, does not conduct any fractional reserve banking or associated lending activities uh, on the back end, uh, which I think is important here. The other components here is that uh, it, it creates a framework for crypto and digital assets that is somewhat unique outside of other banking regimes. It leverages property law concepts such as bailments. It's harmonized with the underlying commercial code, and it has a dedicated supervisory program that is tailored for crypto custody. So it's one thing to say, oh, great, a bank can handle digital assets as the OCC did in their interpretive guidance a couple of weeks back, we've always understood that banks could handle digital assets. But the fact of the matter is that these existing banking regimes don't have these features that this new one in Wyoming does uh, that makes it so much more attractive uh, to pursue. And so uh, from Kraken's perspective, we've always understood, look, if you're going to play the game in the US, you're going to be subject to some sort of regulation. Uh, but Kraken is a very customer-centric and principled organization, uh, and is interested in creating right-sized and sensible regulations that, yes, can further the objectives of customer protection and the safety and soundness of our institutions, but do so in a reasonable way that isn't just regulation for regulation's sake, and understands that these digital assets or you know, cryptocurrencies need different types of frameworks. That's the reason that we're so excited, and we think this is such a big deal. You know, Again, we're going to have access to the Federal Reserve 
we're going to be able to serve as a good control location at the bank. Now, these are technical terms that maybe uh, some folks don't appreciate, but this is unprecedented territory for a crypto company. All I heard from all of that was that you're now a bank. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> good. I, at, least, I... at least you got the gist. <laughs> oh no, we've said the B word. It's 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 simultaneously exciting yet a bit disappointing. So, David, you <laughs> you know the thing is that it's more the terminology because the truth is that what you've achieved here is very different from a bank. And I I picked up on um, two things that that are clear differentiations. One, the property aspect of bailments. And for perhaps our audience that doesn't understand the concept of bailments, maybe David, you could explain what implications that has. The other thing that I also read, and maybe you can confirm, is that under this special licensing you have as a state chartered bank, you do not have fractional reserve banking as is traditional with other banks. Is that correct? That's correct. Okay. So first, what is a bailment? Yeah. So the concept of a bailment, uh, like maybe the most layman's way to explain it is uh, when you have a property you go to a valet and you drop the keys to your car off, right? That valet can't do whatever they want with the car. There is a, an underlying kind of implicit contract that occurs with that property that you've ceded control of, but not legal ownership of. Uh, and so there is a certain code, an established relationship between the person dropping that property off and the person taking control and safekeeping of that property. In a normal bank situation, that does not exist. When you deposit your dollars there, they have no direct relationship to that customer as a specific form of identified property belonging to that customer. It just goes into a pool on the back end that they can do. And what they do do is, is lend out on the back end. And that's why the FDIC needed to come in and provide this insurance, because if it gets lost and there's no FDI insurance, well, the customer's out of luck because they don't have a direct property relationship to what they've dropped off at that bank. So with Kraken Financial, this is different, right? You do have legal ownership and a claim to the specific property that you're entrusting Kraken to store. But how is that reflected in the code or like the way that it works? If you go to Kraken today, you can deposit US dollars uh, or other fiat currencies through partners, and you can deposit cryptocurrencies. The way that it works today is very similar to how it's going to work in the future. Now, I will say, and I will admit wholeheartedly that the first step, it will be a legal construction of what that means. And it, and it may or may not be reflected directly in code in a safekeeping stance. There's different tiers of how you can take control and ownership of that property. The lowest tier is something that you, a lot of people refer to as safekeeping. Uh, other people call it as the omnibus or something like that. And then there's levels up that are proper custody and qualified custody where there's properly segregated accounts. And in that sense, yes, that will be reflected in the code because your UTXO set or your other types of crypto kind of account-based networks, all of that will be segregated on a per-customer basis under those structures. We talked about bailments. What was the next thing after that? Well, the fractional reserve aspect of it, which is uh, another difference from traditional banking. That's right. Yeah. This type of regime, the SPDI regime, prohibits any sort of fractional reserve. And basically what that means is what banks do is they take deposits and then they lend out those deposits on the back end such that their liabilities to return deposits to customers is greater. It, it far exceeds what they actually have on hand. And so that creates the type of insolvency risks that the FDIC and other types of mechanisms were brought into place to fight against. The beauty here is it aligns incentives when you don't have that a little bit better, and it allows us to remove duplicative oversight 
from a state banking regulator, a Federal Reserve regulator, and then adding the FDIC on top. Here, because it's so carefully tailored, we're uh, able to avoid that last layer of FDIC oversight and just stick with the actual state banking regulator and the Federal Reserve, which removes a ton of burden and overhead here and allows us to operate our business more permissibly because when you are subject to FDIC oversight, you're generally also subject to the Bank Holding Company Act, which severely restricts the type of business activities that you can conduct. Uh, and so for those reasons, this is a very attractive and carefully tailored banking regime for a digital asset or fintech company. Kraken Financial is not lending at all to its customers? It is not taking uh, customer deposits and lending on the back end without their knowledge or anything like that. There are some ways in which on the digital asset or crypto side, customers can instruct us to lend assets if the customer itself wants to do it. We can facilitate those as like an intermediary, but in no event are we going to just take customer money and lend it out to some third party who they have no idea the risk profile of uh, and then pull all their assets together and do that on a repeated basis and maintain fewer assets on hand than our liabilities. That, that will not happen. Uh-huh, okay. David, you're going to be a 100% reserve company. For years now, we've been talking about proof of reserves, both in the Bitcoin space as well as in the fiat space. How do companies like yours prove that what is on the books, on the order books and the deposit balances in the database actually match the crypto amounts that are in storage and the fiat amounts that are in bank accounts and, of course, the corresponding liabilities, if any? How does that work? Is Kraken one of the companies that does some kind of cryptographic proof of reserves? Is that something that you would consider or need to do for this? Or does it go under a completely different audit regime now? Obviously, banks, like many other companies, are required to be uh, audited in a variety of different ways, actually. It's not just financial audits, which are conducted by CPAs or third parties. There's all sorts of technical and other audits, control audits policies and procedures, all audits and things like that. But specifically with respect to this types of proof of reserves, certainly as a bank, we'll have that traditional third party type of audits. And actually that part of the industry has matured quite a bit. When I started in this industry, you know, back in 2012, 2013, the idea that an ENY or someone like that would be able to come in and conduct any sort of third party audit activity was just so far beyond the cognition of what was happening in the space at that time. Now there are ENY and others, Grant Thornton and you know, Deloitte and these others are actually doing that, that work. So at least we have that level. Now Kraken is trying to go above and beyond. And on the exchange today, we're trying to move that forward where we have a more cryptographic and directly accessible from customers form of proof of reserves. And we have one version of that. It still does require a third-party auditor to be part of that process, but it's en route to what we would love to see in the industry, which is what you're referencing, whether it's based on like some protocol that, you know, from Adam Bath or otherwise, whatever it looks like, we'd love to see a proof of reserve where customers can get direct and unintermediated assurance that their particular Bitcoin or other crypto assets are held and held where they're supposed to be held. We're not there yet, if I'm being totally honest, but it's somewhere we're driving towards. Hey listeners, Crypto.com offers one of the most convenient ways to purchase your favorite tokens or cryptocurrencies. It's also one of the most cost-effective ways, with the normal 3.5% credit card fee waived for all crypto purchases. What's more, with Crypto.com's MCO Visa card, you can get up to 10% back on things like food and grocery shopping. When you buy gift cards with the Crypto.com app, 
you can get up to 20% back. So download the Crypto.com app today and enjoy these offers until the end of September. Bitstamp is the original global cryptocurrency exchange. Since 2011, Bitstamp has been the preferred exchange for serious traders and investors, trusted by over 4 million customers, including top financial institutions. Bitstamp is built on professional-grade trading technology. Their platform is powered by a NASDAQ matching engine, and their APIs are recognized as the best in the industry. Download the Bitstamp app from the App Store or Google Play, or visit bitstamp.net slash pro to learn more and start trading today. That's bitstamp.net slash pro. In this crisis, many investors aim to keep and grow their digital assets. Others seek to maximize the yield on their cash. Nexo allows you to achieve exactly these two goals. The company offers instant crypto credit lines against all major cryptocurrencies, with interest rates starting from only 5.9% APR. Nexo also lets you earn up to 10% annually on your fiat and digital assets. What's more, interest is paid out daily, and you can add or withdraw funds at any time. Get started at nexo.io. So, David, Kraken Financial is now a bank. Is that just in a technical sense, as in the only customers that you'll take are users of the Kraken Exchange product, or will you be growing your customer base with any interested party, whether or not they are actually using exchange services or have a relationship with the parent company? Both and, and on route to the lab. So uh, at first, we would expect uh, our built-in market, so to speak, to be U.S. domiciled existing customers of the Kraken Exchange. But you're absolutely correct that you know, once we do that rollout, we'll be accepting customers who want to take advantage of our online and mobile banking product. And whether or not they want to access any sort of trading venue or exchange functionality is up to them. So we do expect folks to come in and not take advantage of the kind of existing Kraken functionality on the exchange. And this is great because it allows us to also bifurcate kind of the distribution channels and customer segments that we can talk to. So we can kind of continue to serve in a better way, the existing Kraken customers. And it'll be better because, again, we're going to have direct connectivity to the Fed and federal payment system and more seamlessly integrate that into the product set and customer experience. And we'll be able to offer new products and services that we wouldn't otherwise as not a bank. Also, we'll be able to speak to folks who maybe are not already involved in the digital asset industry, are not familiar with crypto or Bitcoin, and may come in because they want to take advantage of like a fintech style online mobile banking experience. And then we can open the door to them. And if they want to add on and get connectivity to the digital asset world, they can do so. So yeah, definitely both. Okay, so playing off of kind of that, and then also the conversation we had before about the no fractional reserve depository institution, um, you know, and the bailment concepts, I figure that customers coming in from Kraken, you're making money off of that because of the relationship that they have with Kraken, and that's your parent company. But for people who are not coming in through the Kraken door, how does the bank make money off of them? As a full reserve, non-fractional reserve banking institution, you still are able to earn some form of yield when you place those deposits in treasuries or other type of very highly triple A plus rated securities, which is what actually happens. You know, you have some in cash, customer deposits and others in that type of security. Now, in the interest rate environment we're in now, it's very measly and we would expect this kind of very, very low yield, zero yield environment to persist. So you're correct in asserting that our revenue stream from just straight up deposited US dollars will likely be minimal, at least on a percentage basis. Now, if you get scale, it still matters. And so that will be potentially a meaningful revenue stream. 
Also, the traditional banking revenue streams of transactional. So if you're processing wires or ACH or whatever, there's some small payment there. And that's true for digital assets too, when folks are depositing or withdrawing and we're covering network fees is very similar. Then on the digital asset or crypto side, just taking uh, custody of digital assets, a lot of times you can charge a percentage fee based on that, especially for institutions. Less so for customers who want to park their digital assets there, but more so for institutions who have a qualified custody need or some sort of like corporate or enterprise need. There's a very big market for that. That's like the product that we kind of offer today. Then there's a whole host of new products that we do expect to expand into. And that's payment services like a debit card that's backed by Bitcoin or other cryptocurrency. That's things like special types of accounts like IRAs or retirement or tax advantage accounts. That's things like wealth management or advisory services or investment products. That's things like I mentioned, qualified custody. Down the line, this bank can also deal in other asset classes such as securities, commodities and derivatives, which we think is important because what we are seeing here is kind of a commingling and convergence of digital asset industry, fintech and neobanks, and then traditional financial services. And they're all kind of bundling and unbundling these services. And so we kind of are open up our revenue streams and with this license can play across that whole landscape. So that makes sense to me. So one, one thing that jumps out at me though, is that, so it sounds like for crypto or for token deposits, you're literally just holding on to those and maybe even collecting a small fee again, specifically from institutions, as you said, who would rather pay somebody a little bit of money in order to offload the risk of managing sort of that uh, custody themselves. On the dollar side of the line, though, uh, you mentioned that, uh, you know, you're investing into sort of traditional, very low risk perceived assets like treasuries. Obviously, a big part of kind of the, the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency narrative is that actually those are a lot more risky than people know. It's just not a day to day risk. It's a systemic risk. And obviously, we're kind of in this period of unprecedented intervention happening at the monetary policy level. On top of, you know, the, you know, back in 2008, obviously, that was sort of the first batch of this, which in large part seems to have inspired, or at least popularized cryptocurrency and sort of the, the things that are different about it. Is your strategy more nuanced for the dollar holdings than just putting them into treasuries? Or do you perceive those as very low risk or kind of talk to us about that? Yeah, I mean, certainly, there are personal opinions in the industry and at Kraken about kind of what the long-term effects of kind of the monetary policy of the US dollar will be. I have my opinions, other people have theirs. Suffice it to say, I have an opinion that the US dollar and Bitcoin are the two greatest assets that man has ever created, which is perhaps a unique opinion within those amongst Bitcoin circles. So I think there's like a totally valid use case for those that want US dollars and those that want Bitcoin. One way to think about it is perhaps Bitcoin is a store of value, whereas the US dollar is a preeminent medium of exchange. That's one way to view it. Another way to view it is that you know, the US dollar uh, is, is something that gets you access to deploy into other types of harder assets, homes and other things in the US economy. But the bottom line is it, we're all about customer choice and customer centric protection. And if somebody wants to keep US dollars, you know, we have no problem with that. The biggest thing about this and why we would support both and actually not only support, promote both is that Kraken's mission is to promote the adoption of digital assets to empower and enable individual financial freedom, more so in the world than exists today. This Kraken financial entity kind of goes down and is a great tool on that path because it provides seamless integration from the traditional financial system to the digital asset ecosystem. And that is absolutely critical to accelerate and promote that adoption that we want to see. 
And so we, I think it would be folly for us to say, oh, well, we're not, you know, we're not going to promote or enable kind of this USD on-ramp. I mean, the fact of the matter is most of the folks still use that. And it's still very hard to get US dollars into the digital asset ecosystem in many cases. And so for us, that's the play here is kind of making that seamless and strategic integration between the two systems, however they play out and however the customer chooses. Okay, David. So this has been a great conversation, lightning fast by our standards. Talk to me about your view of exchanges or large crypto companies moving forward vis-a-vis sort of this move to banking. Kraken is obviously the first crypto exchange to get a banking charter. Are you leading the pack or is this something that's important to Kraken because of specific ambitions uh, or perhaps, you know, business models that you want to go after that we might not see elsewhere in the industry? Short question here is, is this the start of a trend or a one-off, you think? Uh, absolutely a start of a trend. There, I mean, look, there's no doubt that Kraken is pursuing this duly. One, for its own business interests and for the interests of its customers, but two, to kind of lead the effort in the industry. There is no question in my mind, and there never actually really has been, that you would need to move to banking to be able to properly offer a full suite of financial services and incorporate digital assets into them. There are a lot of regulated financial services industries and regimes and regulators across the US. But banking is the granddaddy of them all and at the bottom of the stack. And if you really want to be a player in the space, you're going to need to go to banking. And banking preempts a lot of other regimes as well. So you don't have this duplicative kind of oversight. If you were to say, well, we want to go a 50 state money transmitter. And now we need to have, be a broker dealer in order to like custody and clear. And we need to you know, go to the CFTC for derivatives, all this stuff can be uh, consolidated at a banking regime level, which is why it's so exciting. I don't think there's any doubt that you're going to see other digital asset companies uh, pursuing bank charters, and you're going to see already bank chartered institutions getting into digital assets. The advantage here is Wyoming and the SPDI regime, I believe, is two years ahead of any other regulator in the space. Now, that'll be accelerated because they will borrow very liberally from the Wyoming standards. But the fact of the matter is when you have Someone like the OCC come out with that interpretive letter, that's tremendous. Again, I've said, uh, I've always understood banks to be able to do that. But if you're a large institution, having that letter uh, reduces some perceived risk on your part. But the bottom line is that the frameworks haven't changed and the supervisory program hasn't changed. And until you do that, Wyoming is still the best banking charter for digital asset companies. Take that, New York. <laughs> I mean, we argued four years ago that the New York DFS was a step in the wrong direction, would end up being a handicap for New York-based institutions, and would end up delaying adoption and development and innovation in New York. It seems like Wyoming won this round, uh, for yeah. sure. And I'll tell you, I'm, uh, I just moved from New York to Wyoming. I agree with you. Look, I, I, I was around when, during the Lawski era under the DFS, and to be diplomatic, let's just say, look, I think it was a well-intentioned effort, perhaps, but it was certainly um, ill-conceived and ill-drafted, and it did set the industry back. And obviously, notably, Kraken left that jurisdiction because of it, as did many other companies. I think it achieved its primary goal beautifully. I mean, <laughs> if you conceive as the DFS as a, a employment and career development plan for Ben Lossky, it succeeded without any reservations. It failed for all of the people in New York and the financial institution, but Ben's doing quite well. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that there. Uh, but I will say uh, for sure that there's no doubt that like, this framework is much better. And we believe you know, this framework, as, as other state chartered banks do, they get recognized and, and reciprocity from other states. And so there are some states that you'll have to do a couple extra hoops to jump through. 
New York being one of them. But we would absolutely expect to be able to take this on the road and get into every state, sometimes with additional effort, but nonetheless there. I mean, on a personal note, I think you're also seeing a lot of folks uh, leaving New York. I mean, I was always attracted to New York. It was for freedom. I mean, it was like a place you could be who you wanted to be, do what you wanted to do, when you wanted to do it. And I'm not sure that's so true going forward. Now, maybe we're getting away from banking and financial services a bit. But look, I personally have relocated to Wyoming for similar reasons. Yeah, it's really interesting because ultimately we had discussed this for years on our show, which is the idea that one of the great strengths of a global and borderless system like Bitcoin vis-a-vis the traditional financial system is that fragmentation in regulation will ultimately undermine the ability of regulators to keep control and will result in the kind of jurisdictional arbitrage and competition between regulatory jurisdictions that tax havens do both abroad internationally and right here in the United States. And that's exactly what Wyoming has done. It said, they are giving you a hard time. We're going to welcome you with open arms. And that's a wrap on yet another episode. Today's show featured Andreas M. Antonopoulos, Stephanie Murphy, David Kanitsky, and myself, Adam B. Levine. Music for today's show comes courtesy of Jared Rubens with editing by Jonas. If you have any questions, comments, complaints, or tips, send us an email at adam at ltbshow.com. And we'll see you next time.